Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Faye. And um, once again, good morning, uh, especially if you've walked in after I initially greeted us. Uh, my name is Femi. We are com- we've been doing a, book of, um, a series in the book of Colossians. We're coming to the end. Today is the penultimate um, um, sermon on that. So next week, we'll take the last one. Um, you know, Christianity, I think, in, in my lifetime here in, in Nigeria, and let me say more specifically in Lagos, has always had um, a very important place. In, in the fabric of society. But more than that, not just an important place, but a very revered place, a very revered place. Um, and even though I think that um, we still play a very important role, most people almost every Sunday, well, a lot of people go to church every Sunday, it's still hard for you to find, apart from Muslims, it's still hard for you to find somebody who would say they're not Christians. But I would say, first of all, that sacred and privileged place that we used to occupy is dwindling every year, or should we even say every month. Um, and I think we're losing that place for a variety of reasons. We lose that place for that place we once held for a variety of reasons. Let me give us four of them, not exhaustively, but four, four particular reasons. Uh, more and more, we're having, uh, uh, more people are being educated um, more deeply, a lot of people, whether um, um, it's going abroad to study or it's just the fact that the internet is a reality of our lives now. And so a lot of people are able to learn certain things from people they will have been uh, very far away from and wouldn't have had access to 30 years ago. And because people are becoming more educated, um, an anti-intellectual kind of Christianity that many people have been presented um, just they find that it doesn't satisfy their intellectual appetites. And so they feel that they have to choose uh, between following Christ, the Christian faith but seeing, being seen as a non-intellectual or actually being seen as somebody that um, their peers and their colleagues will accept, um, but at that point they can't be Christians. Another reason is there are a lot of people who have been presented with and suffered under an ungracious, legalistic, and unbiblical form of Christianity. So some people grew up with just a very hard nose, you must keep the rules, you must stay within your, this lane, all of those things. And because of the damage that it did to them, those people eventually said, I don't, I'm not sure I want any part of this again. Third, a lot of people have only known a Christianity that is emotionally detached from people's suffering especially in marriage and mental illnesses. So growing up, a lot of people just thought, you know, if you are suffering your marriage, particularly if you're a woman and you're married and things are going hard, suck it up. God doesn't like divorce. This is your lot in life. Or some people, when, when um, trying to communicate their mental struggles, were then told this was a, just only a spiritual issue, um, or the, uh, they were stigmatized and they were put out. And so with the growing awareness that mental illness is a thing, a lot of people are attributing the fact that the Christianity that they had, and this is the Christianity that they know, has no place to speak about these things or to address these things. And then finally, scandals, particularly with men of God. 
If it's not about an over, they are over enthusiastic and fraudulent messages on material prosperity, which is probably the lightning rod, I would say, of the groundswell of anti-Christian sentiment today. It may also be the abuse of spiritual power to bully those they don't like, or worse off, using it to sexually abuse women in particular who once revered them. So, this is the context that is growing, I would say. How do we react to it? Now, on the one hand, with, based on the study that we've gone through, you may decide to be a Colossians 3 Christian. What do I mean by Colossians 3 Christian? That is, I'll focus on my church. Since the world hates me, I'll focus on my church. I'll focus on my marriage. I'll focus on my family. And I'll focus on my work. In other words, you retreat to the things that are personal to you. They hate us, so I'm going to stay away from them. And we'll just focus on the things that we care about. And at the same time, as that is happening, as you, the more and more you see people's statements about Christianity and all of those things, very, very combustible statements, you also start to have a growing resentment towards them. It becomes an us versus their mentality. That's one option. But you see, Colossians doesn't end in chapter 3. Actually, it ends in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Paul shows us that the gospel that rightly brings us in and gives us uh, principles to deal with the things that we care about that are close to us, our family, our work, and all of those things, the gospel that pulls us into community is also the gospel that sends us out on mission. In other words, Paul is saying that whatever context you find yourself in, you need to be people who go out and take this message. But he says this, in doing so, as you see in verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards them, towards outsiders. So in the context I've just described, I want to say this, more than ever we do need wisdom in how we engage outsiders. Because to engage outsiders or not is not an option. But what we do need, as they needed then, and we do need now, is wisdom. Wisdom in engaging them. Now, many times we felt evangelism is a way we can, well, we all know how to evangelize, just follow these three steps or something. But I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say that Paul, uh, that's the, the model that Paul out, uh, outlines. And also, I would say that will fail us in this particular time. So what we want to look at today is Paul gives us some principles on how we should display wisdom in engaging outsiders or in trying to evangelize those who do not believe in Christ. And I think he, um, he gives us three principles that we want to look at um, in this passage. First one, uh, prayerful devotion. Second, clear proclamation. And third, graceful conversation. Prayerful devotion, clear proclamation, and graceful conversation. So let's start with the first. Prayerful devotion. Um, you know, the first step in wise engagement with outsiders has little to do with engaging with them directly. In fact, you don't, it's not about directly engaging with them. It has to do with your posture, the posture that you adopt as a Christian. Look at what it says in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, he says we should devote ourselves to prayer, but he's not first and foremost saying just devote yourself to prayer. In fact, he says adopt a particular posture that would ensure that truly you're someone who is devoted to prayer. What is that posture? He says be watchful and thankful. That is, we should have a state of being that perpetually rests in thankfulness and watchfulness. Now, what does he mean with, let me let's break down the two words. By being watchful, um, especially as this word is used in the New Testament over and over again, it basically means anticipating Christ's second coming. That is, Paul wants Christians to remember that partaking of the gospel means realizing that we've been promised something that has not yet been consummated. But when Christ comes, it will. In other words, we are like, 
a gate man who is waiting for his ogre or his madam to come, waiting for them, or like a child whose parents have traveled for a while and you know the day they are coming. You don't know the time they are coming, but you know the day they are coming, and so what do you keep doing? You are waiting with anticipation for their coming. Amen? And it says Christians who believe the gospel, I remember we looked at some of the promises of the gospel, that we don't have everything that we are, we are promised. And it says we should always, Christians, always live in light of the fact that Christ is coming and he will complete that which he started. The second thing is that he says we should be thankful. That is, we should live a life whereby appreciation, specifically for what, Christ, for what God has done for us in Christ, is a lifestyle that has totally transformed us and softened our hearts. Now, don't get me wrong. Many times when you ask Christians, oh, how you, you see a Christian who is feeling um, very giddy, you know, maybe they are thankful for the fact that God has healed them from a, a disease, or maybe God has made some kind of provision for them. You know, all of these things are wonderful. They are true. They are, they are fantastic. But if your life of thankfulness revolves around only material things or things that you get in this world, you are not following what Paul is saying. Paul is saying if you understand what Christ has given us in the gospel, you will see that that is the most important thing. And so being watchful for his coming, having not as, uh, received everything that he's meant to give us, should also come together with a heart of thankfulness, knowing that he's given us something that no one can take away from us. He's given us something that is more precious than a healthy body, that is more precious than a stable bank account, that is more precious than a wonderful spouse, that is more precious than well-behaved kids. If you lack all of those four things I've said, and you have Christ, he says that you should be thankful. Amen? Now, why is this important? Because what he's saying here is that he wants us to adopt a state of being as grateful watchers. Someone say grateful watchers. Because if you are not a grateful watcher, there's an alternative. You know what the alternative to being a grateful watcher is? An ungrateful watcher. That's nice, right? Very smart. Right? You see, the difference between the two of them while a grateful watcher watches out for Christ's return, an ungrateful watcher watches out for badly behaving non-Christians. While if the uh, grateful watcher is moved to pray for non-Christians, the ungrateful watcher is moved to condemn non-Christians. It's all about a posture and a state of being. If your heart is thankful towards God for what he did for you, by grace that you did not deserve, and you are watching out for Christ's coming, then your devotion to prayer will be also to watch out for non-Christians and to pray for them. But if you are the kind of person who feels that you almost deserve it, you will take a different posture. You see, grateful watchers have been so transformed by God's love for sinners like them. They remember who they were. They remember that they did not deserve the grace of God, that they were far away from him. They remember that they were worshipping and doing their own things, whether worshipping themselves or worshipping other things. And yet, yet, God could pour out his love on them. Why? This is how they've come to see the gospel. Not as people who are worthy to receive it, but people who also aren't worthless, people who are unworthy. And yet God's grace has brought them near. So when they see other people who once were like them, they don't look at them disdainfully. They have compassion towards them. Whereas if you are like that Pharisee who was in the temple, who stood up, looked to God, so he was a believer in God, and he was thankful to God, he was thankful. That's what Paul says, isn't it? He said, God, I thank you. He thanked God for the things that he had. And then he said, I thank you that I'm not like that, that, uh, that um, tax collector. He was an ungrateful watcher. Why? Because as he stood in the temple praying to God, he looked at himself and said, why would God want to have a relationship with me? I know there are some of us who look ourselves in the mirror and like, Men and fly. <laughs> like, why won't God want to have a relationship with me? First of all, you are, you are deluded from what you are seeing in the mirror. 
Because everyone I can look at here, none of you look as fly as I am. And even I don't look at the mirror and say that God, you know, all right, some days, maybe some days, some days I do. But when you feel you deserve the grace of God, you look at others who aren't working for it and you look down on them. And so what happens is we start to attack the people that we should be praying for. Do you love them the way God loved you when you were not his, when you were not his child? Because guess what? When Paul says be devoted to prayer, you will not pray for those you do not love. Bottom line, we don't. Instead, you won't care. You won't see them as people who uh, uh, we should uh, pursue to be saved. Rather, you would only want to use them as examples. You will be telling your children, you see that person there? Don't be like them. Just stay away from them. You want to use them as examples. You hiss at them. You wish ill on them. You will do anything but to pray for them. You will not be wise in engaging with outsiders if you take that posture. But if you took the right posture, if you were a grateful watcher, Paul then can ask you to do something. He says, pray for us too. And what does he ask for them to pray? He says, pray for us that God may what? Open a door for our message. So Paul wasn't just saying, pray for me. Paul was saying, pray for me as I want to take not my message, but the message of God to them. You see what Paul is trying to say, and this should be a comfort for many of us. We may not be able to reach everyone with what we know. Not every one of us is as gifted as Paul is. But the first response to people who are not Christians is to pray. That is something all of us can do. Who came into the world to save sinners? Can I ask again? Who came into the world to save sinners? So if anyone could look at them and do some kind of, you know, mumbo-jumbo, if anyone, he knew he was going to go and die for them. And Jesus was God as well. So Jesus could just go and say, you know what, sinners, ah, don't worry, I'm coming. I'm going to the cross. Just chill. It will all be fine. I'm going to send some people out. When Jesus looked at sinners scattered as sheep without a shepherd, he did not tell his disciples, go into the harvest. Listen to what he said. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So go ye out. That would be the natural pragmatic response. And he says, no, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send. Yes, people need to be sent out, but prayer has to precede that. Amen? This is something all of us can do. Are your hearts being hardened against the deluge of abuse that we get from non-Christians? And do we feel we should retreat and only keep caring for our own things, our own community, our own people? Maybe they bother you at work. Maybe they have been unjust to you. Is your heart towards them one of ill? Or you're allowing the grace of God to melt it so that you can love them and do what? Pray for them. Some will say, well, I've been praying for someone for a while. Well, first of all, the thing about that is your prayer shows two things. It shows you, especially if you are devoted to prayer, it shows you the things that are, most, that are utmost in your heart. Because if I poke any of us now, most of us now, to just start praying, and you want to pray for something, most of us will pray for the things that we are desiring, isn't it? Because that's immediately what is in our heart, the things that we don't have. So if you say, well, I've been praying for this person for such a long time, I'm probably giving up, then that means the person's salvation has now started to dwindle in your scale of priorities. But here's the second thing. If you say, well, I want to stop, I don't think I can start, continue to pray for that person. You're also doubting the power of God to save. What is impossible with men is possible with God. 
There was a friend of mine um, whose parents got married in the 70s. They both got married as non-Christians. Um, not too long after, the mom got saved. But the dad didn't really have anything to do with it. The dad was pretty, very successful. He was the CEO of one of the um, most popular uh, industries in Nigeria at the time. Or he became. He eventually arose. He was very successful in his career. Educated abroad. He, he didn't feel the need. All this fan religious fanatism that my wife is going about. You know, I don't have anything. But it's good for the children. Let them go. She will talk with him, try. Some of his friends eventually got saved. They'll be trying to talk to him. Nah, nah, nah. Eventually, the children grew up, started going to church. They got saved. They started asking. Nah, nah, nah. But the wife kept on praying for him. Kept on praying. 70s, nothing happened. 80s, nothing happened. Eventually, she joined a particular church, and they all started praying for him. Nothing happened. The children, too, joined in. They continued to pray for him. Nothing happened. 90s. Came, nothing happened. In 2000, he lost his first son. What do you think that did? Pushed him further away. Nothing happened. In the first decade of the 2000s, as that was rolling by, nothing still happened. At this time, we got close as well. And so as a community too, we always just used to pray for him. Nothing happened. At this point, he's getting retired. He's retired from that company. He's doing his own thing. One day, he comes into Lagos. He's about to fly over to, I think, Port Harcourt. He collapses. He almost collapses in the, in the, at the airport. He's taken to the hospital. It's found that he has cancer in the lungs. And eventually, after a few days, his friend comes, can hardly speak. At this point, people are still praying. And he comes to him. I can't say his name. Let's just say his name is Dakbo, Dakbo. When are you going to eventually going to surrender to the Lord? When are you going to accept that you are a sinner and that God loves you? And of course, the friend said that casually. He's been saying it for 40 years. And this man couldn't speak again. But he winked with his eye. He nodded. He moved. And that's how his friend led him to the Lord. Two days later, he died. And guess where he is now? With Jesus. 40 years of prayer, the wife never stopped. Amen. Decades of prayer, the children never stopped. The church never stopped. Our prayers, the effectual fervent prayers of the righteous does what? It avails much. It may not be on the time scale that you have put, but we must be devoted to what? Prayer. If you want to be wise with outsiders, the first thing is not to write some evangelistic steps. You must engage not with them, but with the Lord that saves them. And we must make sure that we are persistent in that prayer. You think things are too hard for you? You say, no. I have this particular friend. Well, that your intellectually gifted agnostic friend, or that your committed Muslim neighbor, or that your ifa-worshipping singer cousin, or that your futuristic tech-savvy atheistic boss, or that your moralistic pharisaic mother, pray that God may open a door for the message and turn them from outsiders into insiders. Amen. Let that be the priority of our hearts, but also let it be reflected that we believe in the power of God to save. Whether you feel equipped or not, prayer avails much. That takes me to my second point, clear proclamation. Now, with that posture and also consistent prayer, Paul transits from engaging with God to engaging with the non-Christians. Now, if you look at verse 3 to 4, he says, And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, you may say, oh, proclaim. That's Paul. This is for preachers. Well, first of all, hold on. The word, the Greek word that, uh, that's translated proclaim, laleo, can also be translated say or speak. So yes, primarily because Paul is primarily speaking about himself and was a missionary going around preaching, that could apply to him. That translation makes sense. But for us who may not be preachers, you can also 
take that verse to say not necessarily proclaim, but speak about the gospel. In fact, that makes sense when you take verse 5, which then says, our conversation should be with wisdom. So this verse applies to us very much. Now, Paul is teaching us two things that you must never forget, especially in how you engage with non-Christians if you want to be a good evangelist. And I want to, some of you have heard me say this before, but I want you to say it after me. Here's what Paul is teaching us that you mustn't forget. Say this to get with me. Content is king. You didn't say it well enough. Content is king. Context is queen. Say it again. It's king. Context is queen. You must never forget that. In other words, there is a message to be delivered that shouldn't change. Content. What was that? The mystery of Christ. However, if you look at verse 6, the everyone at the end, the last word of, the, uh, of verse 6, the everyone that that message must come to clearly, as we see in verse 4, are not the same. Therefore, you must know your message, content is king, but you must also know your audience, context is queen. Let's start with the first one. What is the content? The content is, as Paul says, the mystery of Christ. That is, by him talking about, we've said this a lot, he's used this mystery of Christ already twice in the book of Colossians in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The mystery of Christ really is aspects of the gospel message that before that time had been hidden. It had been veiled as revealed in the Old Testament, but was now revealed in Paul's time. Do we understand that? The mystery was something that before Paul's time had been hidden, prophesied about, but was not clearly articulated until Paul was chosen to articulate these things. It was the mystery about this Messiah. In other words, listen to this. The gospel is the one that converts. Not jokes, not philosophical thoughts, not our apologetics. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. All these other things that I've said, jokes, philosophies, all the different things, apologetics, they play a role. Maybe they can gain us a listening ear. Having relationships with people, they gain us a listening ear. But it is not your wonderful relationship with someone that converts them. That isn't where the power is. The power is in the gospel. Which then means, when we talk about the gospel, what do we mean? Because there are many, in fact, many times now people use the word gospel, right? And we're not even sure really what you mean. Gospel is everything. It's something that we say in Christianity, basically. So like, oh, these people are suffering. These people are, ah, it's important for us to take the gospel to them. Oh, these people aren't working. It's important for us to take the message of the gospel to them. These people, you know, it's like, wait, hang on. What are, are, we, are we sure we're all talking about the same thing? My building contractors are not delivering on time. I think we should take the gospel to them. People are very late for meetings in Lagos. I think they need what? The gospel. Everything. The gospel solves everything. I'd be like, what are we talking about? We may be using the same uh, vocabularies, but we are using different dictionaries. Now, some of us have seen this definition. We use it a lot in city church, but let me be clear as to I'm not saying it's the only definition, but this, I'll try to defend it. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the incarnate, crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. It's the good news that the incarnate, crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the, is the, risen, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. Incarnate, he's God that became a man. Crucified, he died before his prime. And through that, he became Savior in his death. Risen, he rose from the dead into new life. Lord to ascend to the throne of heaven so that he's Lord of the world. An impending judge, he's impending, he hasn't yet returned, but when he comes back, he will judge the living and the dead, and he will create a new heaven and a new earth and give his followers resurrected bodies. This is the gospel. Now, I say that because in various parts of the New Testament, Remember, when Paul says the mystery of Christ, I said it is aspects of the gospel. In various parts of the New Testament, you will see some of the parts. It's bringing all of these parts together that gives us the definition. So Paul doesn't always say it this way. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he can tell you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. So at that point, he's just talking about the crucifixion. 
Or in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, he says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He's saying, but I thought it was nothing else but Christ and him crucified. But he said, the thing that we preach is Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's Lord there, there's crucifixion there. Or you can take Acts chapter uh, 4 verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So whatever aspect you are bringing here, these five, six elements are absolutely crucial to understanding what the gospel is. This gospel is apprehended by repentance and faith. Why? Because all of us who are created to worship, we are either worshiping the true God or we are worshiping false gods. So we turn away from the true God and we turn to these false gods. Whether they are actual wood, metal, or they are idols of our heart, comfort, um, control, uh, approval, uh, or material things. We are all worshipping something. And as long as we are worshipping something, it's our God that determines how we live. What the gospel says is, now that this news has been announced, what are you going to do? Repentance is turning away from those false gods, and faith is turning to the true and living God. As Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 9.10, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, 10, they, tell, they tell how you turned to God, faith, from idols, repentance, to serve the living and true God, and to wait from his son, the gospel, to wait from his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. In other words, the gospel isn't deliverance from addiction, it's not deliverance from demonic forces, poverty, or illnesses. Many of those things are implications of the gospel. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those things are not important. They are implications. But if you tell your story of how you are delivered from addiction, how you are delivered from being part of a cult, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've apprehended the gospel. Amen. There were people that Jesus healed and he healed them, and that was wonderful. It, was, it showed exactly who Jesus was, but it didn't say that those people were saved. The gospel is the good news that the incarnate crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world, and we apprehend that by turning away from false gods and turning to serve the true and living God. When we do this, he gives us a new status now, never to be condemned, for there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. He gives them the Holy Spirit to live a new life so that now they can follow and walk in holiness with him. And then he gives us a new hope. He will give us resurrected bodies to live in a new world. That is the, those are the benefits of the gospel. I spent some time on that. Because it's important that we know our content. Why? Content is king. However, this content is going to certain people. Because Paul says, I must proclaim it clearly. This is what I should do. Verse 4. In other words, when he's talking about clarity, he's saying... Not just your articulation of the gospel is important, but comprehension for the people that are hearing it is also important. Because it's possible for people to hear what you are saying, and somehow it doesn't connect to them. They can hear it as words, and words that just pass over them. Jesus wants you to be saved. Why? For God's love, the word that I gave is only begotten. They'll start saying it with you. I remember the time when I wasn't saved in, in, um, in union. People would come and meet me. I used to complete the statements for them. But this thing, I know it. I know what it means. It is to um, accept Jesus as and your, not just Lord and Savior, Lord and your personal Savior. It is formulate. We already know. So people, it just comes in and it goes. It doesn't connect to them. There was a... Um, um, a few years ago, my wife and I attended a friend's, the reception of a friend's naming. It was a small thing. It was after church in England. Niger guy. So it was Sunday. We had come from church. He too had come from church. There were a few others there. There was this, you know, this Niger mamas. Right? She wasn't their, she wasn't their um, um, mother, wasn't any of the mothers, but she was one of these mamas around 
I think somehow, somehow illegally was around, but she did this under G. She used to do babysitting. And any of you that is abroad and you know how much babysitting costs, it's always good to have one mama that you can just give 10 pounds for the day. Because if you get one of these poor ch uh, children, they'll be asking for 10 pounds every hour. So mama, all of us were keeping mama there, right? Mama couldn't go on the normal payroll because then she'll be found out. So it was all under G. So mama was there, you know, I think somewhere in like 60s or something. So there was this Chinese girl sitting around, you know, I think she was also a colleague in the university. You know, just happy to be there. Let's all be multicultural. Let's all, you know, sort of mix together. And so mama was sitting next to her. We are kind of talking. Then mama now said, ah, did you ask the girl, did you go to church today? You could see the, you see discomfort just coming. She said, no, no, I didn't go to church. I me and my wife were already like, ah, oh dear, this isn't, go, this isn't going to go well. Mama said, ah, you didn't go to church. She said, why? She said, I, I don't go to church. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian. I will never forget. This woman took like almost a, you know when somebody is staring at you, looking. <laughs> and she uttered these words. So who even created you, Seth? Who created you? Because she was looking at her, I don't understand. What do you mean? Like you don't, is it like you've not thought of, what kind of? This girl could sink into the chair, like, I felt like calling my friend, come and save your guest, though. Whatever my was talking, this creation, this whatever, this girl was coming from a background that even understood what we call the cosmology of the world differently. The way we think about God creating all of that, that's not how she was raised. So many times we take the gospel, it's not that the gospel must go to everyone, but the content that we know must go to different, in different ways. Think about this. John chapter 3, John chapter 4, right next to each other. In John chapter 3, Jesus encounters one man. In John chapter 4, he encounters a woman. So he encounters Nicodemus and the woman at the well. What do you notice about the two of them? Well, they are very different people. He is a man, she is a woman. He is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. He is wealthy. She is poor. He is politically powerful, a member of the Sanhedrin. She's politically weak. He's educated. He's illiterate. How can you speak to both of them the same way? Jesus didn't. His problem, or let me put it this way, they both have the same fundamental problem. That's what the Bible tells us. Sin. But that problem is not expressed the same way because they are different people. For Nicodemus, it was an intellectual problem. He had memorized the whole Old Testament, and he's wondering. He said, look, we see you, and we know that you are somebody who has come from God. Because no one that doesn't come from God cannot do the things that you do. But I'm trying to figure out who you are. It was an intellectual problem. This other woman, her problem was satisfaction. She was looking for it in romance. She married five men. She thought that marriage was a problem. After five men, she realized marriage is not the problem. In fact, marriage is part of the problem. So she still kept on with men, but she wasn't now married. Same fundamental problem, but expressed differently. Why? Because these people are different. So what do you think Jesus did? If they have the same fundamental problem, then they must have the same fundamental solution, which is the gospel. But it cannot be said the same way. So to Nicodemus, Jesus says, are you not Israel's teacher and you do not know these things? In other words, he took him on a lesson through the Old Testament. He gave him a lesson in biblical interpretation. Took him to Numbers chapter 21. Took him to Ezekiel 36. To explain what it means to be born again. These things were there, but you didn't search the scriptures properly. And then he then linked, okay, this new birth they are talking about, how would it be? Well, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man shall be lifted up. And then John then tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was saying, I am that, like that snake that should be lifted up. You need to believe in me. He is the solution. But he took him on an intellectual journey to get there. The woman at the well. Jesus did not get into an intellectual argument. She wanted to use that. She said, ah, when she realized that he must be a prophet, he didn't want to expose herself. She, ah, this man knows a little bit too much about me. So she went to start having a theological debate. Jesus came back 
I said, woman, just as this well and the water that you are drinking from here, you will continue to drink this water, you will eventually die. I have water that if you drink from, you will never thirst again. What was the solution? Jesus Christ, in both instances. But the people had different, they were different people and they had different needs. So what we have to do is to be able to understand our message so much, but understand the people that were written so much, so that we can connect this message in a particular way to their hopes and their fears. People have, where is always seen in the idolatry, that, or the, the kind of idol that we take, we have hopes and fears. Some people are driven by fear. Fear of this, fear of that, fear of this. I don't want this to happen to me. And that is how they order their life. Whereas some people is, this is what I want to achieve. This is how I want to get it. And that's how they order their life. The idols are controlling them. Here is the point. Are we in the state of being first to love those people, to understand those people, to understand our gospel, and then tailor our presentation to their hopes and fears? Imagine if you met a secular climate change activist. Do you just go to her and say, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall not be saved. For, as if, for if you confess with your mouth that uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That message is correct. But what does that have to do with climate change? No, she needs to hear. Because think about it. What's the big problem with climate change? Which I do believe. I don't know if some of us do believe that. My main climate change. The big problem here is this. That we are, as many of scientists tell us, we are heading for a point of no return. If the, if, the, if, we, if the temperature continues to rise to a certain point and we continue to emit the kind of gases that we're emitting, after maybe 20 years, we are going to reach a point of no return. We can't even have any kind of solution to reverse it. This is what they tell us. But we understand that the world is governed or uh, structured with nation states. So it is not just a scientific solution. It's a political solution. That's why you have all these climate change conferences, isn't it? But here's the problem. The people that have developed themselves on coal and fossil fuel for 250 years, where we like to visit and go for holidays, those people are now telling, the ones that are trying to develop themselves, don't emit green gases into the whatever. Are you kidding us? That's, that's the problem. So America cannot tell China that we don't want you to develop, because they are going to send something else. So each time, you cannot find a political solution to this issue. No matter how much you, your activism keeps going, right? you can tweet about it. The farmer in Ogbomosho that is trying to drive his new tractor that is giving CO, uh, carbon monoxide into you want to tell him about climate, he will say, climate kini. What, what are you talking about? So the political system is failing that issue. What are they trying to preserve? The climate activists will tell you, if we don't, if, we st if, we don't, if this thing doesn't stop, the world will be destroyed as we know it. Well, a secular climate change activist needs to hear about a political lord of the world who is in control of all things and will thus deliver his promise of a new world free of pollution. And they don't need to hear about a God that will destroy the world but will take us to heaven. Do you understand? Jesus is Lord. He doesn't need to call a climate change conference for people to agree to be able to reduce certain things by whatever. Jesus is Lord of the world. And he has promised that he is the one that is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth. There is almost no way we can try. We should try. We should all individually, personally try to reduce our carbon footprint and all of those things. But we also know that those incremental changes are not going to bring about the thing. We need somebody who is in control of all things to change it. And so we can promise her all these things that you are living a futility for. We can get the solution to this guaranteed through one who cares for you and has given his life for you. That is a better way. Or somebody who has been hurt, sexually a, a sexually abused person, needs to hear about a God who identified with their brokenness by being broken too on the cross. But... but the difference between their own brokenness and his brokenness is that through his brokenness, he can give them a brand new and clean status. So what is the formula for someone that said there is no formula? 
we rigorously study our Bibles, we lovingly listen to our audience so that we can perceptively connect the gospel to their fears and their hopes. Listen to the people that are in front of you. Don't just keep throwing out the message. Listen, listen. It's when we listen to them, we can tailor the message that we have been studying about to apply to them. Finally, graceful conversation. There's one more thing. If you look at verse 6 to the end, Paul says, I want you to be able to answer everyone. I want you to be able to answer everyone. In other words, Paul anticipates questions about the Christian faith. And in our day, I don't know, in their day, there were a number of things. But in our day, there are a number of things. Maybe questions about how science and Christianity relate. Maybe Christianity and colonialism. Maybe Christianity's exclusive claims. You can only be saved through the gospel. Maybe the lifestyle of Christian leaders that it seems that seems um, inconsistent with what uh, Christians call, uh, with what they call uh, uh, people to live by. Or maybe it's the problem of suffering with the existence of an all-powerful and all-good God. All of these things are there. And as Christians, we should try as much as possible to study to make defenses of the faith. This is what people call apologetics. And one form of apologetics is the rational, rational apologetics. And we've had leading lights, people like C.S. Lewis, um, um, uh, Rav Zacharias, uh, Tim Keller, um, um, Greg Coco, William Lane Craig, they're people. And so even if you cannot, you should try to study as much as possible, listen to these people. If you cannot answer everyone's question, you can say, look, I don't have an answer to that. I will try and get that for you, listen to this person. And an honest inquirer would actually listen or, or read this book. But you know what's so funny about this verse is that Paul did not say, he didn't jump to, when he was talking about um, people's questions, he didn't jump, jump to uh, the content of the defense. Like, this is how Christianity and science work. This is how evolution and Christianity work. He didn't, or this is how you answer the issue of suffering. He didn't point to the content of the defense, but rather the manner of the defense. Listen. Verse 6, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You know what Paul is saying? And I want to speak to some of us Christians who are now growing in knowledge. Paul is saying you can win an argument and lose the person. There are many people who pride themselves in the fact that we have these arguments. I can, they, in fact, you see it on, on, on Facebook, you see it on, on social media. Ravi Zacharias destroys a secular atheist. Or, um, even though he's not a Christian, Jordan, Jordan Peterson destroys a radical feminist. Even that word, destroy. That tells you the position of your heart. You are not trying to win somebody. You are trying to defeat someone. And very well, clap for yourself. You've defeated them with the argument. But guess what? They still reject your argument. What are we doing this for? Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by in some means I may what? Win some. That's our purpose. To win people. Not to destroy them. So Paul is, what he's saying is that it's very analogous to what Peter says, the famous uh, apologetic verse. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, he says, always be ready. Always be ready. First of all, he says, in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. This is part of what Paul is saying about being thankful and watchful. If you revere Christ as Lord in your heart, then this prepares you to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We have to be prepared. We have to know all the arguments. True. But what does this Peter say after? But do this with gentleness and respect. They may not respect you, but respect the fact that they are image bearers of God. They may not be gentle to you, but be gentle with them because you serve a Savior who does not break a bruised reed and does not quench a smoking wick. All of this is important. Paul says, 
you know, to, be, to have your word seasoned with salt is basically to be winsome. But he also says be full of grace. You know why? The people who are saved by grace must be a graceful people. When Paul talks about witnesses in the book of Acts, witnesses to the resurrection, witnessing is twofold. It is what we say and the consistency of what we say in how it has transformed our lives. If you are saying a particular thing, but you are living a particular way, you undermine the very message you give. While people live in the church, while people had been hardened, it's because we are saying a particular thing, but they are seeing a, a different way of behavior. So guys, it comes all back to the first point. Why would we be devoted to prayer? Why would we be uh, devoted to prayer in a state of thankfulness and a state of watchfulness? It's because we've met a Christ who's melted our hearts with his love. And because of the compassion he had for, he had for us, we are compassionate towards non-Christians. We equip ourselves because of love, not equip ourselves so that people will know we are smart. We pray for them because of love. We study the gospel because of love. We study our audience because of love. Why? Because God loved us and he sent his son to die for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer quickly. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.